Entrepreneurs and business owners are always attracted to the tax strategy. That's the sex appeal. What are most of them missing though? For me, it's the growth pillar, right? It's what I consider balance sheet optimization. Tax strategy to me is looking in the rear view mirror. We are trying to save money on money we've already made. And when I build the strategy and I implement it, it solves that problem. And the biggest unquantifiable return that it makes is it opens up our mental capacity to now think about money we're going to make. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Claudio Gambin, is the founder of Gambin Financial Group. His passion lies in working with business owners and specializes in helping, in helping those clients in the areas of risk management, cumulative tax planning, estate distribution strategies, and business transfer planning. Outside of work, Claudio's number one priority is spending time with his wife, Melissa, and three daughters, newly, newly minted Winnie, a new Gambin also with Coco and Senna, and you can frequently find him, maybe not now with a newborn, but boating and fishing at his favorite spot in New Smyrna Beach. Claudio, man, welcome. Yeah, man, thank you. Not as much fishing as I would have liked over the last few months. Not as much sleeping as I would have liked in the last few months. That's the new baby, the new baby uh, conundrum, I guess. And uh, I think you mentioned down here, you do some fishing in Capcana. Have you done that in a while? Man, I haven't. And the season just ended too, right? Uh, just end of January, kind of the blue marlins kind of swim away. So um, no, not this year, maybe next year. Got it. Got it. Reminder to everybody, go to GoBundance.com, uh, fill out an application for any level of membership. We have a community for you. And also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd always appreciate a comment, a review, a rating and review, I should say, on Apple uh, Podcasts or Spotify. Claudia, let's start with a little bit of backstory. I know you're a Floridian. I think you were born there, but I could be wrong. But give us just sort of the five minute uh, uh, from birth to now. Yeah, man, absolutely. I was actually born in Brazil. <clears throat> so uh, I moved to Orlando, Florida when I was six and just stayed. You know, so as far as like the, the birth to now, I think I had like three specific phases in my life. And the first phase was the phase in Brazil. Uh, and... and you know, for one reason or another, I remember it very, very clearly kind of like my, and I'm still close friends with my friends that I was friends with when I was five years old in Brazil. Wow. Um, and then we moved to Florida. You know, I, I, uh, I attribute much of our success to this one specific moment in my life that uh, really shaped how I view life today. You know, the way I look at it is my parents uh, moved from Brazil to Orlando, Florida, they, they made the ultimate sacrifice they, they, to, to move here, not so that they would have a better life, but so that their kids would have the opportunity, not even a guarantee, right? The opportunities that they wouldn't have in, in Brazil. And uh, it's something that kind of fuels me every single day because I, I'm not willing to, to not honor them for that kind of a sacrifice, mm. right? Because it's easy to say, I'm just going to move to a different country. But when you really kind of nail down to the specifics, like they land here in Orlando, Florida, at, at Orlando International, they don't speak the language. They don't know how groceries system works or how to get a car or how to drive. I mean, it's like a completely new world with nobody to relate to, no friends. Total shock. And I mean, the, the, the courage my parents had to have to go through that process just, just so we could have a better life is 
is uh, one of the best blessings they could have ever given me. So I think about it on a daily basis, no matter how hard my day gets, it won't be as hard as the choices they've had to make. So I could have the opportunities that I have today. So that's like my big why, right? Like that's one of my big whys. And so then, you know, Brazil moved to Orlando, stayed in Orlando uh, through high school, went to University of Central Florida, graduated. And when I graduated, it was like the height of the 0809 meltdown. And there was just simply no jobs. And I graduated with an entrepreneurship degree. Um, I, I was a business owner from the day I was born, right? Like I wanted to make, I wanted to be in business. So I graduated and I, and I took an internship with a financial services company and I did really well and just kind of ran that track. And here I am 13 years later, still in the same industry, just kind of trailblazing a new path and, and kind of forging the road for what I think the industry is ultimately going to change too. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about us. Gotcha. What, and about me. what got you into entrepreneurship is very broad focus for a college degree, right? So what got you into the financial services side as an internship versus anything else? Why that? Complete and total luck and accident. Uh, I, I paid my way through college. You know, I'm proud to say that it only took me seven years to get a four year degree. Uh, mostly because I, I would work a semester, save up money and, and go to school for a semester. Like I, I just didn't want to get into a mountain of loans. And at the end of it all, um, towards my sophomore year, I actually met my wife and uh, I knew day one that I wanted to marry her. And I knew that if I needed, I needed to graduate before I could marry her. So it was no longer about like taking my time. It was like, okay, well now I got, I got another why, right? Like I'm madly in love with this girl and she, for some reason sees me and likes me and which, you know, still uh, dumbfounds me every single day. Right. Um, and I knew I had to lock it in cause I was only going to lose more hair and get fatter. So um, I, I graduated and I had three credits, right? I needed three credits to graduate and I went to this internship fair and the first company to give me an internship, I was just going to go get the internship, get my three credits and graduate. And instead of paying for those three credits, I could go work and make money and get three credits. And the first company that hired me, and I wasn't even like being picky. I just, the, the first one, whoever the first one and the first person was, was uh, Northwestern Mutual. And they were willing to pay me a hundred bucks a week. And they were going to give me three credits at the end of the semester. I was like, that's a gold mine sold, you know, let's do yeah. it. Yeah. And that was the beginning of a career. I love it. You talked about where the financial services industry is going for a second. You teased that change too. Yeah. you mentioned. Um, let's start with this. Where is it now? So, and then I want to obviously ask the follow-up question. So like, how would you define the financial service industry now? And then we'll see where it's going to. Yeah. So, so I did pretty well in that company. You know, I, I, I grew it really fast. I broke some records within two or three years, ultimately led the company in, in their sales, you know, four, four or 5,000 advisors, we were number one. And um, at the end of the day, it was a successful business, Jamie, it was. Um, but let me kind of give you the, the iterations of that success. Uh, from from day one to to year five, it was 100% volume based. Let me go s sell as much as I could possibly sell, right? 
And what that helped me build is kind of the experience. And I, I say this, that I was able to cheat time because I sold more in five years than most advisors sell in 15. Mm-hmm. And I could expertly say that I had 15 years worth of experience in five years. And at the end of that five years, I decided that I no longer wanted to run a volume transaction kind of a practice. So I I did a study of who did I have the most amount of fun with and who generated me the most amount of revenue. And oddly enough, there were a lot of the same people, right? And the one characteristic that they had is they were all business owners. So I said at that moment in time in 2014 is I'm going to double down on becoming an expert in working specifically with business owners. Little did I know uh, that was going to shape the next 10 years of my career. But it was truly who I had the most amount of fun working with. And I'm sure you heard this with, with entrepreneurs. Like, if you're not having fun, like, it's not, it's, it's not truly success, no matter how much money you're, you're making, right? You could be making millions, but if you're miserable, are you really successful? Right. And, um, you know, I attribute this to my, to my heritage and being Brazilian, but having fun is like my number one priority. Like, I, if I'm not enjoying my life, it is not valuable to me, right? I, I need to be, whatever I'm doing, even if it's at the gym and or at work or doing some manual labor, like if I'm not having fun, I'm not going to do it. So I started doubling down in this industry. And what I discovered is that most business owners, most entrepreneurs do not find value in financial advisors because of one big paradox a financial advisor is trying to get a client to invest with them, right? Jamie, I'm going to give you advice, but you have to invest with me so that I can get paid, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not getting paid because of the advice. I'm getting paid because of the product that I am advising you to buy. To buy, yeah. But the paradox is, is that most business owners, their best investment is themselves. Their best investment tends to be their business, so I created the golden rule and the golden rule of working with a, with a, with a business owner and entrepreneur is never compete with the business, which led to a big wall. And that wall was in the financial services world, you can be giving the best advice and be the worst performing financial advisor because you don't get paid for the advice. You get paid to advise them into a product. That's what you get paid to do. And although I found a lot of success there, I, it never felt right. Like at its very core, right? At, at its very basic level, when I laid my head on the pillow at night, I didn't feel good. I didn't feel proud because I was giving advice that was good advice, but ultimately leading them to buy a product that they needed, but was it truly moving them in a the direction of their vision? Okay. So just... And I think that's where the industry is today. The, the financial services industry, and I talked to so many business owners that have this like wall and this, this negative connotation of a financial planner or financial advisor because they've experienced someone trying to sell them a product that is not directly moving their business towards the vision, not getting them closer to their goals. And it's not bad, right? Like it's just not alignment. I wouldn't say it's wrong. I'm saying it's not alignment. It's not cohesiveness. It's not complementing. So I think that's when the industry, the industry is today. The industry is built around assets under management, 
selling life insurance, measuring and tracking performance on selling life insurance, measuring tracking performance of assets under management, because it's almost impossible to track giving good advice, hmm. right? Like how yeah. do you rate someone on giving good advice? Because the advice I'm going to give you is totally different than the advice I'm going to give somebody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's where it's today. No, I get that. So, so the, would you say your business, the way you built it is where the puck is going? It has to go this direction. So here's where we're at today, right? When I left my old firm, that was an awesome decade of, of really great experience, unbelievable company, just a, a really great 10 years of experience. But when I left, I had this vision of what I wanted to create. And I wanted to create a firm that was a holistic firm that provided solutions off of strategic advice. I wanted to meet with, a, with, a, with an entrepreneur and say, hey, where are you going? What's your vision? What are you trying to build, right? Okay, you want to grow this thing to 50 million and sell. Here are all the things that we want to provide advice on strategies, right? Things that do not result in a product sale. Strategies such as uh, on the risk management side, how do you own your business? How should you own your business? Do you need a management company? Do you need an organizational chart that shows your, your holding company? That doesn't sell a product, but it's really good advice, right? Or how we should create tax mitigation strategies, work with your CPA to make sure you're optimizing your tax space. That doesn't sell a product, but it's good advice. So I wanted to build a business around strategic advice. And today, our mission around that is we want to build an ecosystem of non-biased strategic advice. And we ultimately will build an organization that serves every aspect of the client on a flat fee model. I wanted to generate a firm that charges a flat fee for the advice and the consulting and the strategic work that we do. And that's going to be how we monetize working with a client. And over the last three years, that's what we've built. And there's still a, lot, a long way to go. But, and I think that's where the industry has to go. It has to go towards a compensation model that is not product driven. Because we can still rec recommend them to work in the wealth management space. And we have a wealth management firm that if they need investments and that's part of their strategic advice, we can serve them there. And we still have an insurance arm that if they need insurance, we can still serve them there. But that's not the only way we monetize a client. We, the, our primary monetization model is through a flat fee that they pay based upon the complexity of the work that we're delivering to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so full disclosure for those listening, I, I'm a client, right? So I met Claudio through other GoBundance members. Claudio's a GoBundance member himself uh, now. And um, I'll be honest, I, it's funny. I, I guess I never appreciated your niche in serving entrepreneurs specifically or serving business owners specifically, because we're a mess at the low level, like me, all the way up to the high level, we're a mess, right? And so the the things, the value, and I'm I'm you know earlier on and and all of that in in my uh, my relationship, but the value so far has been first non judgment. I mean, I sat down with you and I was like, okay, here's me, here's the mess I am, and you're like, yeah, all right, you and every other client I have. But if you're in a 
in a, if you're not focused on this particular type of client, like big vision people, big people that are, you know, like eyes in the sky. And that's your first question. Where are you going? Like you said, somebody wants to sell a $50 million business. Great. Now let's, let's work toward that. So no judgment was big for me. The second thing was you actually gave me in a sentence, the, the business model that I have without me understanding how to articulate it. So I was saying to you, like, all right, look, man, I've got this so I've got this podcast that I do, and then there's a course, right? But then I I have like, you know, I'm an ambassador for GoBundance, and then I've got this real estate model over here. I'm like, I'm all over the place. Like, no, you have a business of trust. People get to know you, you help them develop through your course. At that point, they become millionaires or whatever. They go to GoBundance, there's a monetization play for you there, and you help them get there and they've built trust with you. So now when they're ready to invest, you've got that opportunity for them with Quantum. And I was like, holy shit, that happened today. The day you told me that. It literally happened that day. There was a, a person who came up through Emerge, went to GoBundance and said, hey, I invest with people I don't know. I'd rather invest with somebody I do. And they invested money, a good amount, in a deal that we had at that point. So that was another piece of the value. And the third is accountability. Like your team has been after me because I'm a mess and I'm trying to get all my stuff together to say, yeah, here's this, here's that. Um, so those are the things when you're working with a specific class of individual, not like higher or lower, but business owner, entrepreneur, that's growth minded, I think is what you, you, the way you uh, bring it up, not just anyone, but like growth minded entrepreneurs or growth minded business owners. Um, I don't know. That's what I get out of it. Um, there was a question in there. Go ahead. But you, you go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I was just saying like, that, that's it. Like we are, we serve stage two growth oriented entrepreneurs. And, you know, if you were a neurosurgeon that worked for a hospital system, I really wouldn't even know where to start, right? That's yeah. not where I, that's not my expertise. Stage two growth oriented entrepreneurs is my expertise. And that's been, uh, because it, it's an ecosystem that's ever evolving. And, you know, just the, the cheat code here is like every business owner that I interview, right? Cause part of our process is to interview them and do an in-depth understanding helps me grow and it helps them grow. So I've done that 10,000 times plus at this point, I've interviewed over 10,000 business owners. So the, what I'm what I'm delivering to you, Jamie, or whoever else I've learned from other clients, yeah. what I'm learning from you, I'm going to deliver the next version of clients. So it's this ecosystem that is ever evolving and getting better and better and better over time because we're niching. Right. And, and I guess that's one of my best decisions I've ever made back in 2014 is deciding that who I'm going to work with uh, which led to the scariest business decision I've ever made, which is learning the power of the, the of the word no. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I made a decision at that moment in time that if you were not this specific demographic of individual, I could not say yes to you, no matter how much money you had, no matter how wealthy you were, no matter how much you wanted to invest, no matter how big of a policy you wanted to buy, the answer was no. And it's because in business and in life we are all working off of a zero sum game. If you say yes to something, you're automatically saying no to something else, right? And if you say yes to the wrong client, you are saying no to the right client. But conversely, if you say no to the wrong client, you are opening yourself up for the ability to say yes to the right client, which, which is my favorite quote of all times. Like I think about this quote every single day is, Henry Ford, he who works all day has no time to make money. Hmm. Right? Because I've never heard that. That's a Henry Ford quote. 
Yeah. You, me, like we make money in here, right. In our brains, we think we create, we deliver and we monetize. But if I am working all day, grinding it out and I don't have time to think I'm never going to build this business to what it can be. And if I don't, I'm never going to be bring the impact to the people that I can't be bringing impact to. So, you know, I think about saying no all the time and I say no all the time. And now we have eight advisors in here that I don't have to say no anymore. I can say yes, but I can't take you on here. Work with this advisor. He's going to be really great for you. Right. Um, Because I want to be able to have margin so I can think and get creative and really deliver and build so that we become better and better and better for our clients and for our industry, like I truly believe we're, we're trailblazing a path in this industry that over the next 5, 10, 15 years, this is where the big financial services world, they're going to move to this model. They, they have to monetize off of advice, not off of product, so that they that their advisors can truly be working in the best interest of their clients, not simply selling them a product. I love it. When you spoke, the way I met you was uh, you spoke at the Michigan local chapter meeting for for GoBundas on a Zoom call. I remember the room, big screen, the whole nine. And you talked about with Gambit Financial Group, the the four pillars that you have. And the one I feel like maybe it landed with me most, but got the most discussion going in the room is around tax strategy or tax, well, tax strategy, I guess, tax mitigation. What is it about that? Because I think you even admitted like this is the one that you geek out on the most. What is it about tax strategy? Let's start with that, that you are so passionate about. It's an immediate ROI, right? So I believe that the IRS code was built by business owners for business owners. Okay. So uh, the way it's written, the way it's designed, it's, it's done so that uh, as a business owner, there are endless opportunities that are completely legal, black and white, like in the code for you to use to reduce your tax liability. Not so that you can just make more money and pocket more money, but so that you can reinvest in your people, reinvest in your infrastructure and equipment and real estate and capitalize your growth. So I geek out over it because it's a direct impact I can have in your bottom line, right? If I'm charging you $30,000 for my work and I save you $100,000 in taxes, like I immediately created value. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think no matter how we work in any space that we're in, there needs to be a value exchange, right? Whether you're selling cement floors, roofs, computers, financial services, I'm going to give you a dollar and I expect X in return. Yeah. Right. So that to me is, a, is another reason. So um, it's also about if you want to build a $50 million company and I can take your tax bill from 300,000 to a hundred thousand, I know you're going to take that 200 differential. You're going to hire four people. You're going to maybe buy a, a piece of property and more equipment. And I just got you one step closer to that $50 million, right? I just got you one step closer to you reaching your vision you sleep better at night knowing that you have a more capitalized business, you have better infrastructure, and you have an asset behind the, behind the scenes. Yeah. So that's right. And and just to give it away, okay? Can I? Yeah. Is that okay? If I, yeah, like, yeah. I was going to probably ask you to just next. So go for it. <laughs> yeah. Like this is broad, right? But like as a business owner, keep in mind there are four key categories in the tax planning space. But before the four, there's one major rule. 
be proactive, not reactive. If you're not being proactive, you are missing the boat. So like, unfortunately, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but I know it's going to air after the year's ended because the year's already ended. Yeah. But if you are having a conversation with your tax team after the year is over, you have got the wrong tax team. And most CPAs get really pissed off when I say this, but it's not me, it's them. If you're not having a conversation with your client at the end of Q3, okay, or even in the middle of Q3, you're missing the boat. Your client and you guys thinking tax planning, you need to be having this conversation October, November, December, September, October, November, December, so that you can build the strategies, implement the strategies so it actually impacts the year that you're being taxed in. That's the number one rule. Mm -hmm. And then the four key things is you've got credits, tax credits, you've got tax depreciation, you've got tax deductions, and then you've got tax deferrals. Credits are the most impactful one, right? So the really popular one right now is employee retention credits. You've got research and development tax credits. You've got energy incentive tax credits. You've got ADA tax credits. You've got foreign working tax. You've got all kinds of tax credits. Work with somebody that knows them. And then there's there's tax credits for the construction space. There's tax credits for the healthcare space. There's tax credits for the technology space. They're built to help you grow, right? These credits are in place so you grow. And the reason credits are impactful is because it's dollar for dollar. Mm. You get a dollar in tax credit, your tax bill goes down by a dollar, okay? Next is depreciation. GoBundance, big on real estate, cost segregation in this space. But cost segregation is valuable because it allows for you to maximize depreciation. The reason I love depreciation is because depreciation generally works with leverage. So if you buy a car for $100,000 and it fits the mold, right? Or for depreciation, you can depreciate 100% of the car. You didn't spend $100,000. You probably spent $20,000 and financed eighty. But you get 100% depreciation. And actually, this year, you're going to get 80% depreciation on the full 100000 right? That happens with real estate. That happens with equipment. That happens with certain business investments, certain investments, certain syndications. That can happen with a, with a really high level, right? Yeah. The next the deductions. We can get really creative with deductions and qualifying something that would ordinarily be a personal expense. Following the right rules, it can become a business expense. You know, the, the really hot topics right now are the Augusta strategies. You can actually rent your house to your business, receive 14 days worth of income tax-free and be able to deduct it on the other side. You double dip the tax code. You can mm -hmm. actually put your kids on payroll. There's a bunch of this stuff that, again, needs to apply to you and you got to follow a certain set of rules, but you can create massive amounts of tax-exempt income and deductions at the same time. And then there's more strategies here to maximize value, yeah. right? What what about on this topic? What how do CPAs re so you're not a CPA, right? You're you're advising or you're creating the strategy on behalf of the client so that they can bring it to their CPA. And I know you have some that you can refer to, but how how do CPAs receive these strategies? It's it's one of two ways. <laughs> you're either yeah. working with a CPA that is incredibly open-minded um, and wants to grow, right? And, and a lot of them already know a lot of the stuff and they're already implementing it because they see this. This is where this is like where the curve is going for their industry as well. Planning, 
five years ago, it was send me all your stuff in January. I'll have it ready by April 15th. Yeah. I've met more CPAs in the last six months that are having proactive planning conversations than I have in my entire career. Mm. So you either have that guy or you've got the egocentric individual where if they don't know something, it's automatically a no. Mm. Right. It's where I'm building out a strategy and I'm saying, here's the tax codes. Here's the, here's all the, the supporting documentation. And we're showing up to the CPA and they're going, oh, that, that's too good to be true. I'm like, what? The IRS website is too good to be true. This, this specific code is too good to be true. And then you, you get into an ego conversation and it just generally doesn't go well, which then they ultimately get fired. And <laughs> yeah. we, we have to find a new CPA. And that's why, you know, like, uh, like a quick uh, solution for us is, in the next 12 months, we will be launching our own independent tax and CPA you know, preparation firm so that we can integrate. So we're not ha- we're skipping this step for the client because our ultimate goal, Jamie, is not to put anything else on your plate. We want to handle this stuff for you and simply report back like a COO reports back to the CEO. Uh, CEO Jamie, uh, here's what we found as opportunities in your tax bill. We met with your CPA. Here's what's been implemented. Here's how much you saved. Uh, are you okay with this? Yeah. Yes. Right. Good to go. Right. So yeah. we're bringing everything in house so that everything integrates, and the client has one company and one individual, one relationship manager that they work with that just simply gives them answers and solves their problems, so they can go back to doing what they're best at, spending the time in their business generating big profits. What, uh, what's the percentage in your experience? And it sounds like it's shifting a bit, but of CPAs that are conversation A, they get it, they understand the code, they're growth-minded versus CPAs that are, you mentioned like egocentric. What's the percentage breakdown between those two? Most are the latter, unfortunately. I would say yeah. 70% are the latter. Um, and, and that's just kind of part of their industry, right? Like it's kind of, it's how they were trained, right? Um, when they go to school, they're not trained to, to, to be on the planning side. They're trained to pump out returns, mm-hmm. plug in data, pump out returns, pump out returns, right? The, the, uh, the appeal of being a CPA is you work your ass off for five months out of the year, and then you can kind of coast for the other seven. It's not the case anymore, right? right. At least not in the space that we're playing in. Right. The uh, IRS has a lot of news. There's different different variations of the news, but there's this 87,000 person hiring over the next 10 years. What percentage of those are going to be agents and all this stuff? So let's start with that. How, if at all, does that play into what you do or just thoughts in general about this, this, uh, this push to hire? We will never put our clients in a position of risk. Right. Um, we, we always rate their strategies. We say, Hey, this is a level one strategy where it's no risk at all. It's bulletproof. This is a level two strategy that, that as long as your documentation is really, really good, you'll be fine if you ever get audited. And then there's a level three strategy where it's like, you will probably get audited. <laughs> and are you sure you want to do this? Right. We probably, we don't recommend this. And then there are some clients who are like, I don't care. Send it. And I'm like, well, as long as your CPA signs on the bottom line and they approve it and they ultimately do it, then that's on you. But here's all the education you need. Here's how this works. Here's all the education. So 
Uh, you know, as far as 87,000 IRS agents, let's think about that for a minute. If a hundred people, if a thousand people were hiring a thousand people a week, it would take 87 weeks to hire 87,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you really think the government can do something that fast? And 87 weeks is a year and a half, right? We'll likely have a completely different president with a completely different tax code. I mean, we're already seeing in the news that's that's being redacted. So it's like, you know, it's really scary at the very surface level. And this is the general advice I give all of my clients is what you're seeing on TV. If you take a moment and really go down the rabbit hole of how this applies to you specifically, you will realize that it has zero bearing on you. Because at the end of the day, let's say they do hire 87,000 and you are documented well and you are following through. Does that change your life? Yeah. No, it doesn't change your life. What does change your life is if you spend time worrying and thinking and getting anxiety about what they're hiring. That does, that changes your life. Don't let the TV give, take that power from you, right? You are a smart individual. You've run a successful business. You know how to make educated decisions. Don't give that power away to the television. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. On the flip side of it, there's some momentum or discussion or bills proposed about completely abolishing the IRS and going to a consumption tax. Is that possible from your perspective? No, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, um, they need something new to kind of fill in, in between crises and yeah. and whatnot. I don't know. To me, I I spend very little time worrying about what is potentially going to happen. And I know what I have to do, right? Like I know what my controllables are. I know how many clients I have to talk to on a daily basis. I know how many projects I want to complete on a quarterly basis. I know, I know all my metrics and I'm going to go worry about that. And, And frankly, you know, in full disclosure, I spend a lot of time reading because I want to be educated so I read a lot of up and coming market McKinsey. So I, I spend a lot of time on those studies. I don't spend a lot of time on the news, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, it's funny. I, I That's where I came up with the, how long it's actually going to take. It wasn't me being extra bright and thinking through it. It was a McKinsey study that, um, logistically speaking, the government does not have the capacity to actually hire the 87,000 agents. And they suggested that it would take them four to six years to hire those agents. Yeah. So uh, the, the reason the minute I read that, I was like, hmm, that's a good point. What am I, what am I worried about? Right. In four to six years, I may have sold this business. I don't know. I don't know. I may be, I may have sold it all and now Jamie's neighbor in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, right, right, right. It's true, right? I get it so far out. Who knows, right? And right. um well I was gonna say something about the with the with the government hiring that many people, the logistical concerns. You mentioned something that I was gonna I was gonna dive in on, but I can't remember what it is right now. Um that's gonna bother me. I'll figure it out. I'll come back to it. What is the so entrepreneurs and business owners, I'm assuming, are always attracted to, or at least I saw it in the room that day, always attracted to the tax strategy. That's the sex appeal. What are most of them missing, though? So you've got these other pillars. What's the one where you say, look, I'm going to I'm going to show my leg. I'm going to pull up the skirt and show you the tax strategy, the stuff that you really want to see. 
But what I need you to sit through and sit on your hands and act like a big boy or big girl right now is this part, this pillar. What is that for you? For me, it's the growth pillar, right? It's what I consider balance sheet optimization. It takes time and it's complicated because tax strategy to me is looking in the rear view mirror. We are trying to save money on money we've already made. Okay. And we spend time and energy and resources on saving money from money we've already made. And when I build the strategy and I implement it, it solves that problem. And the biggest unquantifiable return that it makes is it opens up our mental capacity to now think about money we're going to make. And that's where balance sheet optimization and cash flow optimization, what I consider just overall growth planning comes in. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners miss the mark here. Uh, and not for any other reason, but because they're solely focused on their business. That's absolutely correct. So when we come in and we look at their balance sheet, we say, well, where in this balance sheet, where in this cash flow can we squeak out more profit? So that when I look at your gross and I look at your profit margin and I look at your net operating income, how do I get two to three more points out of this? And if I can get two to three more points out of this, just like how an investment compounds in return, profit compounds in return as well, right? Because on a $5 million business and you got a million dollars of profit, if I get two more points, right? Mm -hmm. That's an extra 20 grand that you didn't exist before that we're going to roll back in and grow. So optimization there is key. And a lot of times we, we talk to our clients, not a lot of times, every time we talk to our clients about making sure that your balance sheet is working harder than you are. And we see a lot of lazy assets, a lot of lazy assets in our clients' balance sheets. They have expensive debt. They have non-performing liquidity. They have non-performing assets. They have expensive human capital that's also not performing. We're looking at ratios between how many people you have like to your gross revenue. So we, we calculate, well, what's the, your average revenue per employee? And if you hire one more, can we expect the revenue? So let's just say you have quick math, right? 5 million in gross revenue. You've got 20 people, right? That's $100,000 of revenue per individual. My math is off there. I don't know what it is, but my, let's just say it is that, right? So, times, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. That would be 2 million. 2 million. Uh, $250,000 per employee. So if we hire one more person, are we going to grow from 5 to 5.25? And the answer is no. And I'm like, well, why is the answer is no? Let's figure that out. Like, where, where are you bloated? Which employees are not carrying their, their weight, right? And we talk through the two kinds of most important dollars. You got your revenue generating dollar, which is like a salesperson. You spend a dollar on a salesperson, they generate $5 of revenue. Okay. Yep. And then you've got your revenue supporting dollar where if the assistant to the salesperson that blocks and tackles for them so that they have the most amount of time to go generate $5. And if we spend a dollar here, it'll make this dollar make $10 instead of just five. How do you, yeah. Okay. 
We, we, am I going too deep here? Am I, am, am no, I... no, 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 no. I'm just thinking. How, so, all right, I'm, I'm picturing this, right? So I'm in a business or I, I own a, yeah. whatever, a roofing company and I'm doing 5 million a year in revenue and I've got crews. I've got, um, you know, my admin staff, maybe, maybe an executive staff of some sort or whatever the case may be. How do I go about understanding the answer to that question? Well, if you make, if it's, you know, 20 people, and like you said, 250000 a person is the average revenue per employee. If I add one more, will it generate me another 250000 How do I get to say no or yes? How do I know how to? We segregate, right? We segregate yeah. because it's not average. There's going to be employees that actually make you $500,000 and there's going to be employees that only make you fifty. And then we know where to invest, right? And we know that for every salesperson, we need two crew. And for every salesperson, we need... Point three of admin. Well, I look at the ratios and you're bloated on the admin side because no offense, Mr. Owner, you're kind of being lazy and you're making them go pick up your dry cleaning and you want them to wash your car. And like, now if you eliminate and get efficient, you make squeak out 10% more profit or you may grow and double the size of your company. Are you really committed to getting to $50 million? Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. And if the answer is yes, we should probably take your Porsche payment off of the business because that's generating zero dollars in revenue, but increasing your expense. Interesting. Right. Is there, is there any conflict with tax strategies in those in those scenarios? And that, but that's easy to solve because we can we can shift it out to a different company and still create the tax benefit. But now we're not losing value because the ultimate consequence of having a bloated balance sheet is one you lose the value. Like the biggest questions I like to answer is, Jamie, your company is worth $50 million. Yeah. How do I turn it into $50 million? Mm. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at how do I turn this thing? How do I turn a $50 million company into actually $50 million or 60 or 70 or 80? And I do it by optimizing, right? But more importantly, in today's world, in the economy that we're in today, it's not a matter of optimization. It's a matter of survival, okay? Over the last few years, it's been incredibly easy to do business, okay? I, I don't know if you would agree, but I think- Yes, 100%, um, yeah. Uh, banks have been lending blindly. Yeah. People have been buying wildly. Money's available, EIDL, PPP, ER. I mean, money's flying at you from every corner of the balance sheet, and you don't have to try really, really hard. And the ones that are doing really, really well are because they didn't get lazy and they doubled down on their talents. Mm -hmm. Okay. It will not be like that in 2023. Business isn't going to be as easy. So efficiency and customer service will outshine the rest. Wow. Okay. So yeah. I think, I believe that we're going to go into a slowdown mode. And I think the right individuals that take the proactive approach will thrive. And the individuals who don't may survive. Hmm. And as a business owner and you, I'm so excited for those individuals that may survive because I am just going to eat them for lunch. Yeah. Right? I'm going to buy them. And I may, I may not even have to buy them. They may go out of business themselves and their entire client base is now my market share that I'm sure just stacking. And the way to prepare, the way to get ready for this kind of a market is to follow three rules. 
Okay. And these aren't my three rules. This is a study that we've done from 2017 with business owners to 2000 and 2021. We extract, we moved into a little bit of 2022, but we didn't have a full year, but three things. One, okay. You have to make sure you capitalize your balance sheet. Okay. And I've been working with clients since the middle of last year on adding capital, build liquidity, not lazy money, but efficient money. Go get, go build up your liquidity, go build up your access to liquidity, go add debt to your balance sheet so that you have access to capital. Under normal circumstances, you'd be at three to 7% liquidity. I want you to be a 15 to 20% liquidity wow. from a balance sheet perspective. Yeah. One, two, reduce fixed operational expenses. Okay. If it's not a revenue generating dollar or a revenue supporting dollar, it goes. So that Porsche payment, that bloated human capital, we've got to reduce fixed expenses, not variable expenses because we can shift variable quick, right? We can stop eating out. We can reduce variable expenses quick. Fixed takes longer. When you reduce fixed expenses, you optimize liquidity again, right? More money builds up there. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is to stay away from shiny objects. Staying away from shiny objects is key. And what I mean by shiny objects is it's not only the red Ferrari, it's not only the fancy boat, but it's also staying in your lane, right? If you are a real estate guy, don't buy a restaurant. Mm -hmm. No matter how good the opportunity is, no matter how amazing the ROI is going to be, it's not your business. Stay, you know, deep, go deep into what you know. Don't broaden, do not diversify right now. It's now time to double down on what you're an expert at. It's funny because I just bought a restaurant, but um, I own a few of them already. So I know the space, right? Sure. sure. Um, but my point is, is like double down on what you know. And the first deal isn't the best deal. Okay. So keep in mind that over the next eight to 12 months, as this thing deteriorates and there will be endless opportunities and the more patient you can be, the biggest your return will be. That is amazing. I love the three pieces of advice and you had me going through all three just now. Like, okay, yeah, I feel good on one. I feel good on two and three, dude, I'm fucking built for shiny objects. So that's the hardest one. Entrepreneurs are right. Right. We, we are visionaries and we are dreamers. We're like, imagine what this could be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's funny. The, I'm, I'm one of my businesses now is this mastermind I'm hosting next week, my first one, uh, which I'm excited about. And because of, I, you know, I I've been drinking down like the content from Jordan Peterson and Benjamin Hardy and Ryan Pineda. And there's all these people that are in the same space. And you're talking about it right now on that shiny object one It's the concept of Pareto's principle or Pareto's principle. You're familiar Oh yeah. 80, if you're successful in this, you think you're going to be successful everywhere. Right. Well, yeah. And they go through the 80, 20, right? So like yeah. you go into the one thing, like you said, double down on your talent, stay there and, and eliminate the other 80. And literally that's, that's the, 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 we're leveraging that as part of this mastermind, because that's what, that's what these people that are coming to this need. They need to get really clear on that one thing. So it's easy to preach, I guess, but harder to practice. But for sure, I think that is absolutely essential going forward. Those all make a ton of sense. I wanted to clean one thing up though. You talked about on the tax strategy piece, uh, you know, yeah. Okay. The red Ferrari comes out, but 
Claudio, I, I get a big write-off for that. And now I'm going to be tax disadvantaged. And you said, well, we can create another company. Can you dive into that? What does that mean, create another company? Yeah, most, most, um, most business owners, most, generally are either an S-Corp or filing as an S-Corp, which means that um, you may own three different companies and the income and expenses of all companies will ultimately flow into one. Mm. And you file a personal tax return, right? Got it. So in order for you to make your main business the most valuable, you may have to de-bloat some of these expenses. But in order for you not to lose the asset, you may move it to another company, still create the deduction. So you have a much more profit here, but you still carry the expense here. And it ultimately flows through to the bottom so that you have a net out um, without losing the tax benefit. And then one more thing to clean up is yeah. building liquidity, okay? Um, this is when you ask me, like, you tax is sexy, but what are they missing out on? And I think this is what most business owners are missing out on, is doubling down on leverage. As you're building up your liquidity, the bank account is not your best friend, okay? Keep enough money in your bank account to keep operating your business. Everything else, move out into performing assets, Okay. And you have to use what I consider a double leverage model. Um, and double leverage model is simply putting your assets to work and then collateralizing them and borrowing against them. There are very specific things that you have to do, but let's just say you have 500,000 in cash. No, keep math simple. You have a million in cash. If you can get the million in cash to work for you at four, five, six percent, okay. Mm-hmm. And you can borrow at least 90% of it out via a collateralized line of credit mm. at a more aggressive rate, right? And we're seeing rates through institutions right now at four and a half to five, okay? Uh, you can create positive spread without losing liquidity. And now your money is not lazy. Your money is working. Mm. So you leave it working, making you five or 6%. And when the opportunity presents itself, you can choose to either use the cash or use the debt, whichever one makes the most mathematical sense. And that double leverage model allows for you to double dip the money, right? Because let's just say you use, let's say the money earns 6%, whether it's through creative investing, through insurance contracts, whatever it may be, whatever you choose to use, and you borrow it out through institutional lending at four and a half. Which is then tax deductible, by the way. So then is you're that cost- doable right now? Four and a half? Is that possible? It, that is. It absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a client right now that's borrowing money at two point two point nine percent. Like recently. Uh, that's like, something that they they borrowed a year ago or, or eighteen no, like months six, ago. Six weeks ago. Wow. Okay. Sorry. Didn't, yeah, didn't the, money the, is fully, the money is fully collateralized, right? It's not yeah. like unsecured debt or real estate True. debt. It's fully collateralized. And it's a lot of money. So it's cheaper. It's over $10 million, right? Um, but let's just not even use that math. Four and a half is what you're borrowing at. And that's tax deductible. So your net cost is four. Your money is making you six. You're using the money at four. Hmm. You take your debt and you buy real estate that's going to make you 15. Well, now you're making 15 here and you're making an extra two here. That's a big swing. Yeah. And as interest rate environment shifts, it's only going to get better. And your money is not lazy. And where the, un, the, the unquantifiable return here is while you wait for the opportunity, the money isn't out of the game. 
right? Mm-hmm. Your balance yeah. sheet is working harder than you are. And the year over year momentum that this creates for you is unstoppable, right? It gets to a point to where this ecosystem, let's talk about it. You have liquidity, you deploy it, you borrow against it, you buy real estate, real estate generates tax savings. That tax savings goes back to your company. Real estate generates return, goes back to your company, which then builds up your liquidity, which then increases your leverage, which then buys more real estate. And that ecosystem just builds your net worth while you're focused on building your business. Wow. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And like we were talking about all of this stuff, obviously, you know, everyone's situation being unique and everybody's situation being different. So that's why, that's why you hire the advisor. That's why I hired an advisor. That's why I hired you. So I could, I could learn about how to maximize these dollars that are coming in from, from these different things. So, wow. Let's, uh, let's wrap the other two pillars. So we talked about uh, balance sheet optimization and tax strategy. What are the other two pillars that you help uh, business owners with? The the first piece is risk management. We want to make sure that before we go build all this, before we go create all these cool strategies that are going to kind of take you to the stratosphere, that your foundation is as bulletproof as it can be. Okay. Again, this world was built for business owners. How you own your assets, where you own your assets are completely up to you, right? And being in Florida, I can own a company in Delaware. I can own a company in Nevada and states have different rules that provide different value. Right. So if I'm in a high risk industry, like, um, I don't know, let's just say I'm, I'm doing something with, with big, heavy equipment and on um, the highway, I'm, I'm probably going to get sued. Right. There's inevitably going to be an accident. Someone's probably going to get sued me. So I want to make sure that I operate out of a company that has completely anonymous filing, Delaware, Nevada. Right. Like, which means that they can sue the company, but it, unless there's a, there's a subpoena, the state will never disclose who owns that company. Yeah. Unlike in Florida, where if I open up a company, someone can Google me and find me the company right away. Yeah. So more interpreted, never own everything directly. Most of our clients own three or four companies by themselves. There's no reason why you can't create arm's length separation. There's no reason why we can't create creative trust work, not to avoid taxes. And that's something that just you know, quick rant, these TikTokers and these Instagram guys who are telling everyone to put things in trusts because they avoid taxes couldn't be further from correct. So whatever. Mm. Um, But my point is, is uh, you can put yourself own a holding company out of Delaware as an example, then that holding company can own the shares of your other companies. Now you've created arm's length separation that's going to keep a lawsuit from climbing all the way over. So they're going to sue the company and they're not going to sue you, Mm. right? So your personal assets are protected. Let's say you make a mistake. The business is protected from your mistake. Yeah. Oh, and then add in a trust, add in a revocable trust, a domestic asset protection trust, something that allows for like, you know, when you go to a gas station and there's a big red button in case a lot of shit's on fire, like, you go over there and you press the red button, everything shuts down. Yep. Domestic asset protection trust is that. That's your big red button where if they break through corporate veils and they break through everything and you just need a big red button, that's your big red button. Hmm. Asset protection. The second thing with asset protection is simply put, insurance. Most business owners don't pay attention to their insurance when it's one of the easiest and most effective ways to create limits. 
auto, property, casualty, general liability, umbrella, all that stuff. You want to you want to make sure that you have the right policy with the right carrier at the right amount so that your foundation is bulletproof. Sorry, end rant. No, that's a great rant. I love it. Uh, final pillar. Succession. What does succession look like for you, right? And the succession is all about transitioning our clients from where they are to where they want to go. Are we building this business to give to the kids? Are we building this business to sell? What are we building this business for? And how do we begin with the end in mind, right? Mm-hmm. And reverse engineer it. So if you want to build it to sell, we've got to get you from a business owner valuation to an enterprise valuation, which means you can answer one simple question. Jamie, if you took a six-month vacation and you forgot your phone, you did not answer one phone call or one email for six months, what would you come back to? And if the answer is not a resounding, I would probably come back to 10 to 20% growth. Hmm. Then you don't own a business, you own a job. And that isn't sellable. So that's what we try to move our clients to is what kind of infrastructure do we need to build to create an enterprise value to where you have a business that actually has a sellable value. And then there are key individuals in that organization. How do we make sure we protect those individuals so they don't get poached through golden handcuff programs? And then on the exit, how do we truly sell this thing? And once we do sell, how do we make sure that it sells for the amount that you need so that you never have to worry about money ever again? You probably won't retire because most entrepreneurs don't know how, but working is no matter a, a, a have to, it's not a want to. Yeah. I love it. I'll go back on the irrevocable trust, or I'm sorry, the uh, Instagram advice on trusts, Instagram, TikTok, or advice on trusts being uh, a great tax. What is the advice and why is it wrong? Well, because I'm seeing a trend of a lot of social media advice givers talking about putting money into a business, you know, putting your assets into a business trust or putting your assets into a family trust so that you can avoid taxes. Trusts get taxed the same way you do as an ordinary individual. Putting money into a trust, putting assets into a trust, do not avoid taxes. Trusts inherently are not a tax shelter. Overall, just be careful taking advice from social media, right? It's designed to get views, not to help you. Yeah, unless you're listening to me. And take all the advice. Every (laughs) bit. Strategic business advice. Like if you're talking like high level stuff, but like, don't go build a trust because you heard someone talk about it on social media. Don't go run a tax strategy because you heard someone talk about it on social media. Like talk to a professional, address your risks because that's something that's becoming quite, quite popular these days. Great advice. I got three final questions for you. First, biggest fish you've ever caught and where? Ooh. Biggest fish. Uh, biggest fish was a yellowfin tuna, um, which How is big? my favorite kind of fish to catch. And it was probably 85 pounds. Jesus. Um, uh, we, we've also caught a close to 80 pound grouper. Uh, and that was literally in the middle of the ocean. Um, Where? Like off, off of Florida? Off the coast of Florida? Of Florida, yeah. So we went 180 miles offshore. Wow. And uh, just... <laughs> just stayed. We were there for two days trying to catch fish and we came back with more tuna than we know what to do with. (laughs) That's cool. Restaurants. How many do you own and what are they? 
Um, so we have a chain of three coffee shops. Um, I'm a coffee nerd, so I'm an investor and partner in a, in a chain of coffee shops nice. and uh, two farm to table breakfast lunch restaurants. Nice, but all all local to you, or are they yeah. in different places? All, all local, local, all local. Yeah, it's one of my it's 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 like one of my wealth building strategies outside of my business. I like real estate and venture capital and the micro cap of what I understand. Uh, so every year I try to do between five and six deals um, where I invest. And I always invest through a convertible debt note. And I always invest as a silent partner, but I always take a board chair for strategic advice. So if it doesn't follow my parameters, I don't do it. I love it. I like that. That's what I got to get better at. All right. Final question comes from the GoBundance card game. And the question is, what bucket list item are you excited to cross off next? Actually, um, next week, uh, next week, I'm going to go spend a week in the Sahara Desert. Just uh, doing so, what? Uh, I, I like to do an adventure every year. And we've done adventures all over the country. And this is my first international adventure. So me and my buddies, I've been best friends with these guys since high school. There's five of us and we do an adventure every year. Last year, um, we took dirt bikes from uh, Sequoia down to Yosemite camping along the way. Next week, I leave for Morocco. We fly into Morocco. We get dirt bikes and we cross the Sahara Desert. Holy crap. How long will that take? About seven days. Seven? Is there, how do you, like camp, I guess? You stop it. Like there's no... I, this is going to be a, such an ignorant question, but there's no like towns in the Sahara, right? There, it, well, we, we go from town to town, right? And there's a company that we hired that like kind of puts on the guided tour. So we show up, they confiscate all of our technology because it's designed to like disconnect you. Wow. Uh, and uh, we, we, the company sends you with a guide, a full documentary crew that like you have a documentary of, of your adventure at the end and a chef. So that you like, uh, you know, don't eat bugs and stuff. No <laughs> shit, that would be a pretty cool. How many people can go on that? Uh, we got a they... we got a total of eleven people this time. Wow, uh, what's the size that they allow? Do you know up to six to eight generally? Right. Oh. So I'm actually doing two trips this year. The company is called the Wilderness Collective. If you haven't heard of them, shameless plug. They're one of the coolest guys and I have zero stake in them, but they just yeah. deliver such an amazing experience. So we're doing Sahara desert next week. And then in September, we're doing Iceland. We're crossing Iceland on dirt bikes again. Wow. The so wilderness club, the wilderness collective. Yeah. Collective, excuse me. Collective. And they're launching, um, daddy and kiddos trips. So like you go on a, instead of a dirt bike, you go on an ATV. Yeah. So I'm super excited to do one of those with my kids when they get a little bit older. That's cool. My older one, my oldest kid, seven years old. He's probably right in the range where we could do something like that. So yeah. and it's not, cool. it's, it's not crazy expensive. It's, a, it's like four or $5,000. No kidding. With the documentary crew, the whole night for the whole thing or per person? Per person. Per person. Yeah. I was going to say the whole thing, that would be ridiculously cheap. Yeah, yeah, no, four grand to go and do that for a week. That's amazing. That's you go to a resort and you're going to spend that for a weekend down uh, here in Punta Cana, yeah. you know? So <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. All right. Uh, how can people learn more about you, reach out, connect with you, whatever it might be. So if you can tell or not, I'm not sure, but I'm super passionate about this stuff. So we actually have a podcast. It's called the invest the difference podcast, where we discuss investing in the difference makers in your life and business, which is a lot of this stuff. 
So you can find us there. Um, you can also find me on, on social at, at gfgsolutions.com is our website and our, and our handle. So at gfgsolutions.com or at gfgsolutions is our handle on Instagram. Um, or you can simply just, uh, just reach out, go on our website and reach my emails on there. Just shoot me an email. Beautiful, man. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, hope to, I haven't met you live yet. I was in Orlando for a minute, but I didn't, uh, I told you my story of like passing out. Next time. Next time. Yeah, next time, next time. But, uh, yeah, man, it's great talking with you. Great catching up. And, uh, now, now you're giving me more incentive to be accountable to Jared and the rest of your team to get my shit done. So appreciate you. Yeah. (laughs) Good stuff. Thanks again. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. See ya.